It started when I was a kid. When I was growing up, we would play in the woods near our neighborhood. There was like a few square miles of woods that we like built forts in and stuff. And we would go exploring. And one of the rules was you're not allowed to use trails because we just wanted to get lost. And I've kind of kept doing that my whole life. So if it seems like I'm not getting lost, it's because getting lost is the goal. Wandering around is the goal. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. All right, I'm here with Carl Kaler today. How are you doing, Carl? Pretty good. Where Where in the world are you? I am sitting in my teeny car in sunny San Diego. It's an odd 80 degrees out today, despite being in the middle of winter, in the parking lot of the Marine Lab. 80 degrees, January 31st. <laughs> That's, <laughs> it must be nice, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. So you lose you your sense got, of time a little bit, though. That's something we talked about earlier. Yeah. You don't, you know, the seasons go to the wayside. Yeah. I'm, I've talked to a lot of people that grew up in places like that, and it's having seasons is definitely different, for sure. They don't, they don't know how old they are. They don't know how many years <laughs> have gone by. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, some of them look way older than they are, and some of them look way younger than they are. So I think it messes up the whole temporal situation. You just got back to school back in San Diego. You're outside the Marine Lab. Yep. What What are you working on right now? Well, I spent this morning at the microscope with the Light and Smith Manual of Invertebrates of the Intertidal of Central and Northern California, trying to figure out what species of amphipod I was looking at from eelgrass, and uh, which means I was trying to see how many hairs are on the legs of different <laughs> different amphipods amphipods are like little basically like little shrimps like the thing that most people are familiar with is beach hoppers or sand fleas like the things that jump around on you when you lay down on the beach oh yeah. and i actually fleas they're crustaceans uh that's what i was doing this morning and it was a like we talked about earlier frustrating morning but some days it's some days it's gratifying and some days it's not so <laughs> And these, these little guys have been deceased for about a year, you said? Yeah, they're pickled. So they don't move or think or feel. So they're crustaceans and they're pickled. Do they seem edible? That's actually a good question. I, was th- <laughs> I assume that they would be edible. Like, I don't know if anybody's, anybody's doing that in the world, eating like krill and stuff like that. It's good enough for whales. I don't see why humans couldn't be eating these things. You know how people are making like cricket burgers and stuff like that, mealworm patties. Oh yeah, like, all the the new types of protein. Yeah, I feel like there it would be even easier just to go out and tow a net behind a sailboat and collect a bunch of you know really small crustaceans, copepods and amphipods and all the other pods, and you could maybe end up with something that would be palatable. I have not eaten any, so I don't know. Yeah, not on purpose anyway, I don't think. You think they'd taste like chicken or probably just salt? Probably just salt. Although these ones are also in formalin, so they would give you cancer. Mm. <laughs> you were telling me about sort of the, the project or the, the thing you're working on or working towards, I should say, in your master's. And yeah. you're talking about choosing between two different terrains or ecosystems. Right. So that's the, the tricky thing that I should figure out in the next month uh, is what my project is going to be. Cause I have to come up with like my thesis project, which is going to be, you know, a big research project that I'll spend two years working on basically and do a bunch of time out in the field and, and then hopefully come up with something that leads to like a publication with interesting results. And I want, I want to do something because I'm not planning on continuing in academia. I want it to be something that is, interesting from like a scientific perspective, you know, just like kind of basic science, but also has some thing to bear on management or I want to be, when somebody asks me like, okay, you're doing that. Cool. 
why does that matter? I want to be able to answer that question really easily without having right. to like twist my words or anything like that. So those are two of my criteria. And then also I want it to be something that I, a process that I enjoy because if I'm going to do something for like two whole years, I want it to be pleasant and I want it to be enjoyable. So right now, yeah, I'm trying to figure out whether the project will be in the kelp forest or in the eelgrass. And most people, I guess, know about the kelp forest from Blue Planet or whatever. It's, I think it's the most beautiful ecosystem in the world because, you know, most of the time when you're scuba diving or snorkeling, you're, you're over something. Like if you're at the coral reef, it's beautiful. There's a lot going I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking shit about the coral reef. I enjoy the coral reef, but I, I prefer the kelp forest because on the coral reef, you are flying over this, this ecosystem, this landscape, and you're looking down at all this crazy stuff. Uh, whereas in the kelp forest, you're inside of that ecosystem. Like there are things towering above your head. There are things swimming around, you know, these hold faster swaying in the current and the light comes through the blades of the kelp and makes this golden light. And like, you see like the, the rays shining down and you'll have like a school of barracuda come out from behind one of the hold fasts. And yeah, you're, you're just inside of something. So it's more scuba diving is already an immersive experience, but this takes it to another level. So I am very much tempted to, to move my, my research into that ecosystem, which is, you know, easy. Like there's plenty of questions that happen there and it's an important ecosystem for lots of fisheries. And, but for the, the, some of the academic things I'm interested in, like, I like thinking about nonlinear processes or like, like, uh, or alternate stable states, like, you know, a, a single set of conditions, you could have one state or another state depending on, well, maybe we can go back. That's a big, we can go back to that. Anyway, it's easier to do like easier to control for things and manipulate things in eelgrass meadow because everything's so much smaller. Kelp is growing in a hundred feet of water and you know, there are sea lions and sharks and, big currents and you can't kill kelp because it's already doing poorly because of warmer waters and sea urchins and stuff like that. Whereas if you go to the eelgrass meadow, it's in like, you know, three to six feet of water or whatever it's muddy and you can get permits to like manipulate the patches or, you know, tether things in there. And it's just an, it's a simpler place to do an experiment. And so like, depending on what kind of project I want to do, it could be advantageous to do in there. And there's also, I've always been wary of turning scuba diving into my job because I love it so much and I kind of have a fear of turning pleasure into business and and losing the pleasure, you know? So as you can see, I have not made up my mind. There's advantages to either one. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. The one, I mean, you're going to spend a lot of time in this ecosystem once you decide, right? So the one is beautiful. Love being in there, but the other one, might be a little easier and better better set for you know sort of a sciencey look into it and it would maintain the kelp forest as a place that's strictly pleasure you know right like i've talked to other scientific divers that for them like diving is not as pleasurable because now like 99 percent of the dives they go on they're you know head down counting things along a measuring tape rather than you know, basking in the glory. I think that everybody still catches some of that peripherally, but I'm afraid to push it too far to the edges. So it could be nice to keep the kelp forest, my little underwater church. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. The last time you were scuba diving in a kelp forest, tell me a little bit about that. What what creatures did you see? Oh, man. So I just got done with a scientific diving class out on Catalina, which is I think the greatest place in the world to scuba dive because it's it's off the coast of LA. You know, when you're on the mainland coast, there's a lot, the, there's upwelling happening. And so you have colder, more nutrient rich water, which means there's like more plankton growing and the water's murkier. You also have like sediment running off from the land and the beaches, you know, the waves crashing and kicking things up. Catalina, it's calm water. There's not as much upwelling. It's warmer. And so 60 foot visibility and there were there were a lot of a lot of highlights over the course of a few days, but I saw some new nudibranchs that I'd never seen before, which it's always I always get excited about that. I really like seeing things that are cryptic, 
So like, you know, an organism that has evolved to look exactly like the thing that it lives on or to look to mimic another organism that tickles me because it seems like just such, you know, what are the, the happenstance of evolution that has to lead up to that? It blows my mind. So there was like a nudibranch I saw on a chain going down from a mooring. I didn't, I was looking at another nudibranch that was kind of showy, like bright orange. Just a quick note, I guess. A nudibranch is a sea slug, which sounds, does not sound glamorous at all. Sounds but slimy. It's, yeah, like slugs are beige and, uh, but sea slugs take on all sorts of crazy colors and shapes. I, there's, if anybody that's listening to this wants to be wowed, you can just Google nudibranch, but you can also go to a website that I think is called like Bowie Branchia or something like that. Anyway, just look up like David Bowie nudibranchs, and there is a person that took all of da- like they take a David Bowie outfit and then they find a nudibranch that is dressed the same way. So that kind of like <laughs> me being able to say that that happens tells you about the the gaudy outfits that these things have. Anyway, I was looking at a showy one, and then right next to my finger was something that looked like a piece of just like a goober. I don't even know how to talk about it. It was just like a little. It didn't look like anything, but it was a nudibranch. After I looked at it really closely, and that got me all fired up. <laughs> so that was and you, you that say was it was highlight. cryptic. How so cryptic means that they take on some aesthetic like traits of the things that they're around. Yeah, I guess it's just like a like really well camouflaged a lot or a lot of times really small. So, you know, there there are so many organisms in the ocean that have really specific like symbiotic relationships with like a like a host coral or something like that where they will evolve to look exactly like the thing that they live on so that if you're swimming by if you're a fish that would like to eat a nudibranch like the one that i i saw if you were a fish swimming by you would never see this nudibranch probably because it looks just like a piece of scuzzy algae that is stuck to a bunch of other scuzzy scuzzy algae so it'd be really hard for you to determine that there was anything out of the ordinary there it just totally blends in and it's all, it's also a game, you know, it's like collecting Pokemon cards. Like that's a rare one, you know, it's hard to find. So that satisfies some part of the human brain. Yeah. So he's like the Oscar, the grouch, nudie bronc, just hiding. Yeah, I looking, guess so. Looking green and gross. I like that. Yeah. Oscar, the grouch in a junkyard. That's, that was this nudie bronc. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll throw you another one. There was, this one's a little easier to picture. There was a cave like 40 feet down or something like that. And, you know, if you're on the outside of a cave looking in, you can't really see anything. It's all dark in there. So as you as we went into the cave, like then your vision adjusts and there was just a seal like sitting on its back with its kind of hands tucked up over its belly and it had its eyes closed and it looked like it was taking a nap. I mean, they can't breathe underwater so i don't know how long it had been there but it was just sitting there not doing anything and it woke up because we were there i don't know if it was actually asleep but you know and then it it left looking kind of like fine you know ruined my nap but that was that was cool that was a cool thing to see so you you just wandered into this dude's cave in the middle of nap time you probably just got off of work and you're like what's up dude guess what here's some flashlight no flashlights, but you know bubbles and and he didn't he it was not like a he didn't jump out of there he like kind of took it took a minute to look at us and then decided that it didn't want to deal with it and uh and it left so it wasn't it wasn't you know shocked there was no like surprise I've seen that on seals and sea lions before, but this one was just like, all right, you blew it, I'm out of here <laughs> so to get a little better view, I'm trying to picture this. Where is the light source? Is it is it just a is the cave bigger than I'm thinking it is? And then also Yeah, yeah, I guess this is sort of like, like there's an over I'm in a kelp forest and I'm with my buddy and there's you know there's kelp growing up all around us. So there's kind of the light gets dim as you go down, obviously, and then there was like this big over that's basalt rock. So basalt like takes on all these weird shapes. So it's just kind of like a big pocket. It wasn't like I swam way into a cave. That's scary, but you know, it made me like a fifteen foot deep little enclave in there mm-hmm. so it was pretty open and then it kind of narrows at the back i went in there because my f- that's like vertical walls and caves are my favorite places to scuba dive because where you know the light can't get to it so you 
don't get as much algae and instead it gets covered in like anemones and sponges and other weird stuff and so i went in there expecting that and then boom there was a big seal big seal just napping on his back so well now with the the eelgrass what sort of things do you see in there when you go in there well i'll tell you what i have not actually gone into the eelgrass yet and that's something that i need to do before i make this decision (laughs) yeah Um, yeah that could be uh some real (laughs) buyer's remorse (laughs) on that one (laughs) i mean i know that I've been so the the stuff I've been doing for lab work, just like in the lab looking at stuff on the microscope, the amphipods that I was talking about earlier. Those samples are all from the eelgrass, so I have a pretty good idea of what lives like on the eelgrass, but not amongst the eelgrass because these samples were like things that were pulled up and taken to the lab, pickled. But I know that people see seahorses, which is exciting. I've never seen a seahorse in California, so that'd be cool. There's probably a lot of uh, like juvenile fish. And crabs and snails and eels. crustaceans. What's that? There are probably eels in there too, right? There might be some eels. There's some burrowing fish, I think, that kind of hang out and look like eels. And probably some like stingrays and flatfish, stuff like that. But really, I, I mean, I got to get out there. And, and the visibility is a lot worse. So I've talked to a lot of people that work in eelgrass because it's an important ecosystem. Like it's responsible for 20% of the oceans carbon storage or blue carbon so and it's you know nursery habitat for fish and it helps prevent erosion and all that good stuff so a lot of people are working it's kind of a hot topic right now but a lot of people that work in it complain about like they'll go scuba diving they're like i shouldn't even have brought my fucking mask because you can't see your hands you know you might as well just close your eyes while you're there depending on the day you know right in as vague as you need to be what what could (laughs) could your project be and then what could come of it? Like you, you're talking about what you want out of it between, you know, fun and something wild and meaningful. Like, give me, give me some examples of what it could be. Well, one of the things I thought about this fall was because, because I, the, the intellectual side that I want to pursue is that the idea of like complex systems or like nonlinear dynamics, basically like when, like when a system is behaving in a non-linear way or in, in in a way where complexity, like you have simple inputs and complex outputs, that is so vague. I'm going to, I'm going to try that again. So like the, the good example in the kelp forest, that would be a cool thing to study. And a lot of people are studying this is the, the dynamic between kelp forests and urchin barrens. So I don't know if you've heard about urchin barrens before, but basically, you know, there's the kelp forest I described earlier as beautiful place, full of diversity, full of these giant kelp organisms, which provide habitat for lots of other stuff. And there's lots of nutrients coming. Like the system is recycling nutrients with all its biodiversity and provides habitat for kelp as a foundation species that provides habitat for other species. And, you know, it builds upon itself. There's like kind of a feedback effect there, which is one of those things I like to, to think about where the more organisms you add, you know, you say you add a fish to an ecosystem that's one more thing that another organism could eat or like now, maybe now something could, a worm could move in that could eat that fish's poop or whatever. And so when you add something to an ecosystem, you also add niches or places where other organisms could move in. And so this kelp forest is a self-sustaining, like really diverse and productive ecosystem. But what's been happening more and more, especially in Northern California, not as much down here is that, you know, some disturbance will happen a lot of times, like like the, the El Nino comes through and the water gets warm, which is bad for the kelp, and waves come through and they wipe the kelp out. And then you go back to what used to be a kelp forest, and now there's like no algae. It's just bare rock covered in pink crust and just like thousands and thousands and thousands of urchins. And the urchins eat kelp and other algae. And so like a baby kelp, you know, it can, it, it's, the conditions are the same as in the kelp forest. Like, the water temperature returns to a good level for kelp and you know, like the physical conditions are just the same as for a kelp forest, except the kelp isn't growing there. And that's because the urchins have moved in and, and they're a resilient state. So the urchins, an urchin barren maintains itself because they will eat any algae that starts to grow. So once you have an urchin barren, it's going to stay an urchin barren until there's another big disturbance that will wipe all the urchins out. And then if that happens, 
you know, the urchins get killed by a big storm or wiped off by a big storm, then the kelp can reestablish and the kelp grows back up. And when you have a kelp forest, that's also a very resilient state. Uh, you know, the, the, there's different theories about why, how kelp forests keep urchins from taking over. But, you know, like there are more predators of the urchins present in the kelp forest to keep their populations down. And also the movement of the kelp kind of like can like whip them off and stuff like that. So you have these two states that both can exist under a given set of physical conditions. And it just depends on these big disturbances switching, but back and forth between the two in some cases. What's a predator of an urchin? Sheephead are a good example. They're a big wrasse. They kind of have like really bulbous heads. I mean, well, the males are, are, they look like a Oreo that's red in the middle and they have this big lumpy head with big teeth. And so they'll bite through the spines and, and then lobsters eat urchins. They'll bite through um, the spines. Yeah. Yeah. They will mm. like the small urchins are really, really vulnerable to predation. So that is a, that's, that's an example of something that intellectually, as you can hear from me talking about it, like, I think that's super cool that, you know, it's, it's complicated. Like there's a simple answer like, Oh, well it gets warmer. The kelp dies and the urchins take over. It doesn't, it's simple. Like you can, you could decrease the urchin numbers to below where they were in a normal kelp forest. And it still wouldn't turn back into a kelp forest because that urchin barren state is so resilient. So that is an example of something I could do. And it's important because from a management standpoint, there are like, you know, fishing decisions that you need to make. Like how many of those sheephead can we take? How many lobsters can we take before we might switch this ecosystem to an urchin barren state? Because it's not, it's not a gradual thing. That's, that's part of the, the way these dynamics work is that it's not like you start to lose the kelp and then you're like, oh, wait, well, let's we'll switch it back. We're, we've taken too many lobsters. We can go back now. Usually once you start that process, it cascades because you have all these feedback loops. So once you initiate that process, it's like too late. So you have to be able to, to kind of predict the behavior of the system before you make the mistake by looking at mistakes that have already been made or yeah, that's the kind of thing that I think is cool because it, it tickles my tickles my fancy intellectually, but it also is important for the world at large. And uh, yeah, so there. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a good one. I, I can see the the good things of why kelp forests and that habitat is a good thing to have. Is there any good reason to have urchin barrens? Well, it's like one of those funny things. Well, basically people generally consider that to be a bad thing. They could call it like a collapsed state where like the ecosystem has collapsed. Most people would say no. I mean, I think if you're an urchin, it might be a good thing, but even for the urchins, for the individual urchins, if you're an urchin living in this kelp forest, like you're kind of starving in slow motion, they can shut down their metabolisms sort of and like resorb their gonads. And so they can live for a long, long time without eating, but I'm, I'm imagining in the small mind of an urchin that's like less ideal than being one of the few urchins in a bountiful kelp forest instead of it's like being in a crowded slum, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds <laughs> Maybe if you ask the urchins, that's an interesting perspective. They're they're the worst they're worse off. But in the crowded slum, you're not getting your spines eaten off by some bulbous headed dude. It's true. Yeah. I mean, also the those predators prefer to eat the urchins in the kelp forest because they haven't resorbed all their, all their gonads. Uh, <laughs> basically an, an urchin is usually like 80% testicles or ovaries. And so once they start to suck that stuff back, like metabolize that stuff, they become less fun to eat. And so people like the, the fish and the lobsters will leave them alone more often. I think I know what you mean. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> If you were to do that and uh, it became, you know, what, what could you learn from that? Like what, what might be the, the big explosion of science celebration going on at the end of that? <laughs> explosion of science celebration. Well, this is one the, of the terms, I'm, these are the terms you use, right? With your classmates? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I think one of the things that's actually a little, less appealing about that to me is that it's pretty it's like pretty tapped out like a lot of people have looked at that which is good because it's important but 
you know, I got an ego to feed. I want to, <laughs> I want to make yeah. some new headway. So that's like a, the trick with that is I have to find a new angle or something that, you know, but also not, you know, I don't want to do something that's like extremely specific. I think that's what a lot of people, that's what a lot of science is. And I think that that's inevitable, but I don't want it to be too, too small, uh, too specific because yeah, then it just, it doesn't feel as much like an explosion of science at the end. Right. So if I, I know you, you're not the guy that's, you know, going in the same spot in the forest as 20 other people. You're looking for your own magical spot that has something cool in it. Yeah. And that's, and that's how progress gets made. You know, like that's the cool thing about science is like, you're trying to explore. I mean, that's why maybe so many people like it. It's, it's a form of exploration that is sometimes less physical, more in the mind or like ideas, but like everybody, every scientist I think wants to, you know, find some unexplored continent or at least like an Island or something um, rather than just like, yeah, kind of walking the same path rather than an urchin baron. Yeah. But like, that's the nice thing about science again, is that like in the urchin baron, there could be a whole, there's a whole new continent out there somewhere, like some way of understanding that is just not yet thought of or, so I, I believe this is, I guess this was in that article I wrote for the the magazine, but the, one of the things that that drives me and that I like about the universe is that I really believe that you can zoom in or, or zoom out on anything and that you can find novelty. So you don't have to actually, you don't have to go to a new place. Like you could stay in the eelgrass, you could stay in your lawn. And if you zoom in enough, you're going to, there's going to be more to look at. So yeah. you can get novelty by going new places or by staying in one place and honing in and trying new ideas. I I haven't mentioned that yet, but yes, Carl has written an article for the seasonals quarterly magazine issue five out now, Sweet. catch it on the website. And we're just trying to feed Carl's ego. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's, that's how I got you on the podcast. I just, uh, <laughs> use that lever <laughs> i think it so, works with most folks oh absolutely <laughs> worked pretty well so far your seasonal career however <laughs> what uh what was your last seasonal job well as you know i was in catch can this summer which was a really great time so i was doing sea kayak guiding with catch can kayak company I was a I so this ties back into the grad school thing. Last spring, I was trying to decide which grad school to go to and like whose project I wanted to hop onto. And there, there was at least one person that I was talking to that was doing really cool research uh, about lobsters in Maine, which is where I grew up, um, and had funding and everything. And but he wanted me to start at the beginning of the summer, and I had started to think about going to catch can and kayak guiding. And I, I was like really beating myself over the head trying to figure out like, ah, like, I mean, this is like a big deal, you know, like this is a, my master's, like I'm only going to do this once. Do I, but I, at the end of the day, I, I decided that I really wanted to go have one final, not final, I'll be back to it, but I really wanted to have a really good summer with my friends doing something fun that I loved, uh, not jumping right into grad school, so... I almost didn't go to catch camp, but I did. And I'm really glad. Yeah. And that speaks to that work-life school balance that you were talking about earlier. So what was a normal day for you during your job? Catch can? Yeah. Wake up on the living room floor next to Jordan. Look out the great big bay window. The sun would already be well up given that I'm in Alaska. So it gets up pretty early. Stare out the window for a little bit. And then see, they see the cruise ships come in eat toast and then go, go to work. So show up at the office, which was a quick jaunt down the stairs. The stairs had, I, my, took me two minutes to get to work, but I was on four different streets, three of which were staircases. They all had street names, which I thought was funny. Very catchy game. And then, uh, yeah, greet the guests, start schmoozing, um, which sometimes is great. Sometimes is, is just okay. And then drive out with them to the marina where we worked out of. Give them a spiel about how to kayak and safety and what we're going to be doing out there and what to look for, what to expect. And then you just go out there and it's just like you and 
anywhere between like one and six other people. You could take them wherever you want with it. I mean, it's this nice area because you're between the the big island of Revilla Gigedo and then there's like a bunch of little islands off the coast. And so you could make kind of a, you know, any kind of intricate path you wanted to swiggle around those islands or go up and down the coast. Or I always told people I let the the whims and the wildlife and the wind guide our journey. So the three was, W's, the three W's. That's right. You know, it tried to make it different every day. So I, I don't like routines. So yeah, every day was a little different and keep your eyes on the horizon for whales and sea lions and cool birds and you know, what, whatever you can find that gets people excited. I really, I really, every single day at work, I was like excited, which is, I think is incredible. Like every single day I would go out there and go kayaking and I was like, I can't wait to go kayaking. Like, who knows what I'm going to see today? Eagles, yeah. a lot of, a lot of eagles. There's, just, there's so many of them there. <laughs> it's, it's an infestation. The place is festering with the eagles. What was, uh, what were some of the coolest things you saw when you're out there? Well, I mean, the whales are obviously amazing, I guess. That's something that I hadn't had experience with before. You know, I like went on a whale watch when I was a kid and barfed for three hours and see anything. So that this summer was the first time that I really got to experience whales and it's so cool. And it's like, you know, they're giant, which has it's nice, its own visceral appeal. But then there's like the fact that, you know, that they're, they're pretty intelligent and that they're talking to each other, like intelligent in a way that no other animal maybe is that's pretty exciting and so like when you get to look a whale or an orca or a dolphin in the eye and it's like it's not you know if you look at a a rat in the eye it's probably usually just like scared and trying to run away from you whereas like these whales they'll come check you out and they're not they're not afraid like they're looking at you and you're looking at it i love it when you can have that kind of mutual curiosity in nature so that was cool and then also because i like weird marine creatures whenever there was like a low tide that was those were my favorite days because you could just cruise along the cliffs and find all sorts of outrageous stuff sea cucumbers and weird crabs and anemones and gumboot chitons just all you know and that's nice because you can pick them up and hand them to people and what do those look like gumboot chiton yeah it looks like it's like a big velvety red slipper but there's no hole to put your foot in so it's just like two, like a, yeah, I guess, I guess that does it. It's like, they'll be like almost a foot long sometimes. It's big, bright red velvety thing. And if you pick it up, it'll curl up into a ball in your hand. And if you look really closely, they kind of have like this sort of fuzzy, sparkly texture on their back, which I, which I like. It sounds kind of like a big tongue. Yeah, that's actually exactly what it looks like that's a that's a way better thing better analogy sea <laughs> tongues sea tongues so you got through the summer you yeah i got through the summer you could put <laughs> made it through survived <laughs> survived yeah and you knew you were going back back into the the school situation yeah. when you finished there yep yes i have not been in school for five and a bit years so that I knew that that was going to be a bit of an adjustment, and it was, but it's not too bad. How long School. have you been doing seasonal work? I know you, you did kayaking this year, and you've been on Catalina Island uh, working a bit before. I would, yeah, I would say like four and a half years. So, you know, I graduated from college, and then I worked for an artist for a year and a bit, making big steel sculptures out of 12 inch nails with a guy named John Bisbee. That kind of felt like seasonal work because I never like paid rent, I was living in people's backyards and stuff like that. Uh, but I was in one place for a little bit more than a year there. Um, and then my intention after graduating had always been like, I'm going to go, I don't know, like bike across the country or do something like that. But so, so once I had worked for him for a little over a year, I had enough money to buy a Toyota Sienna. And so me and my best friend, Steven kind of rigged it out, put a solar panel on there and, put all our like skis and whitewater kayaking stuff and backpacking stuff into the car and we lived in that for i guess like six months or something and went across the country because i'd I'd, you know i grew up in maine and family vacations were 
in Ohio. Oh, wild, wild Ohio, yeah. which I enjoyed when I was a kid. But I'm like, you know, I went to New Zealand when I was in college, for, like studied abroad there. And everybody was like, oh, man, like the Redwoods and all this other stuff. And I was like, no, I never really have never seen any of that. Like I've never been to California, never been west of the Mississippi. So I felt, you know, I wanted to travel and I felt that it made a lot more sense to travel within my own country before I went off and explored other ones, you know, because there's a lot here so much yeah when ryan and i went on a little road trip when we were in new zealand and it seemed like every hour and a half we were looking up and going oh this is ohio or oh this is arizona or oh this is you know pennsylvania and just the <laughs> landscape would change in new zealand quickly and it yeah. would remind us of some state or some area in america man we've got it all i really like the more time I've spent in other countries, the more I've realized like America really, or I should say the United States. So people in Canada would get pissed off, but yeah, we're the number 77 podcast in Mexico. So be careful throwing out right. America. Word. Really? Wow. That's cool. <laughs> that's, number 77 that's in Mexico. Told. I don't, I don't believe that. <laughs> that's yeah. what somebody told us. That's crazy. Cool. Yeah. We, we have, we have so many different like biomes and just like crazy rock features and and also it's just it's so accessible so easy to get around like there's so many awesome trail systems it's if you're here already it's very cheap like there's all this public land that's just like yeah go go have fun do whatever you want i love that it's great so coming from maine which which part of america now that you've done road trips around it which part was the most like awe-inspiring when you first saw it i okay here's what i'll say i'll say that when i went to the most surprising the place that I was most surprised by the, like the beauty was I think probably when I, I went down to big bend in Texas, it's like at the bottom of like the further to the West, like little down dip of Texas. And it's a huge national park. And I would like never heard of it at all growing up. We had like a, we had a book about all the national parks. So Steve and I went down there and we didn't have a plan ever but we showed up there and we were just blown away and spent two weeks there. And we literally got kicked out of the park because, well, but we, we had a, I mean, I just didn't know it was there and it was beautiful. Like volcanic mountains, crazy canyons, fossils, hot springs. So cool. Big Bend in Texas. Wow. Yeah. Go in the winter. It's still hot. So people don't go in the summer as much because it's way too hot. They close parts of it. You love outdoor stuff. You love the scuba diving, the the national parks, obviously. You seem to have kind of like a, a plan when you are going into all this. <laughs> maybe maybe not a plan, but like there's no there's no time where I've heard Carl go, Oh yeah, I'm just gonna hang out or get lost or wander or something like that. Like that's how it comes off. How do how do you actually think about it? I think that the way that maybe I present that is that I intentionally wander and get lost. Like that's not a, a side project. It's like, I'm going to go get lost. You know, that was like starting when I was a kid, when I was growing up, we would play in the woods near our neighborhood. There was like a few square miles of woods that we like built forts in and stuff. And we would go exploring. And one of the rules was you're not allowed to use trails because we just want to get lost. And I've kind of kept doing that my whole life. So if it seems like I'm not getting lost, it's because getting lost is a goal. Wandering around is a goal. And then on the, the broader scale of things, like I feel that a lot of the, there's a lot of, I think anybody can say this, like the chain of chance, as you look backwards, you can extend that infinitely. But just a lot of the things that, the important things that have happened in my life, like the reason I'm here is probably largely part or due to being on Catalina for a year and a half. The reason I was there was because I ended up working at this other outdoor school, but the, like all the, all the little things that had to happen, like. I got hired on Catalina because I was trying to fix my car's exhaust system outside my uncle's house. And like, I talked to his neighbor for a second because he, he had a, like a, um, a bus out front of his house that looked like somebody had slept in it. And I always talk to people that look like they sleep in cars. And, <laughs> and I was like, Hey, is that your, you know, is that your car there? And we just started talking and he was like, Oh yeah, I'm the director of this program out on Catalina. So like, that was like, and just, you know, when I look at that, I'm like, damn, like, where would I be right now? Be, I'd, sure, I'd still be a happy person doing cool stuff, but I wouldn't be where I am. I'm pretty sure of that. 
So getting lost is how you get to those, you know, you throw your fate to the wind and that's when opportunity comes. If you know where you're going to be all the time and you know, you you constrain what opportunities are going to show up for you. Whereas if you like when you're traveling, you are vulnerable, but that also exposes you to like exciting new things and exposes you to, yeah, I think talking to people who look like they sleep in cars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it's worked out so far. Yeah, I think so. I'll have to adopt that into my... I feel like you probably already have. I think that a lot of people that do the seasonal thing, it's like sort of an implicit part of seasonal work. You know, one thing leads to another is another way to say what I just said. You didn't know three years ago what you were going to be doing now, but the things that you did in the interim led you to this. And so, which which is exciting that unpredictability keeps you on your toes and keeps you from getting bored yeah and it it keeps you in you know sort of out of your comfort zone and yeah. you're not learning if you're not outside your comfort zone that's back yeah. by science so sweet <laughs> yeah i'd rather be learning every day than just getting stagnant and whatever else but. yeah yeah and i think well that this is an abstract thought i just came up with this in my head right now but like when you're growing your comfort zone, like there's this idea of pushing your comfort zone and you grow your comfort zone in these little, these little like trench warfare things, like push it out a little further, push it out a little further. But I think that you also like the next level up above that, become more comfortable with that process and can make bigger leaps and stuff as you do that over time. Like the, the idea of pushing your comfort zone becomes more comfortable. Right. It's but like a, you... learning a meta <laughs> skill almost learning how to yeah. learn better. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's a good example. Yeah. Meta skills. Meta skills. <laughs> so let me ask you this, because it sounds like you're going to school, you you've got a bunch of this stuff figured out with the the seasonal life and the meta skills and stuff like that. Yeah, what, polished off all my meta skills. Yeah. What, <laughs> what's in the future? What's the great thing that Carl's gonna do? Well, I'll tell you what, it's like I just said, I don't I don't know. That's the beauty of it. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure like something that I think will happen is that I will finish my degree. I'm not making very much money at all, especially because I live in San Diego, but I, I think that I'll be able to come out of here with like a few thousand dollars, uh, basically enough that after being in school for two and a half years, probably that's my guess is how long it's going to take me to be three years. I don't know. Um, I'm going to be in dire need of a lark. So I'm going to go on a lark for about six months. Or find a job that feels like a lark, you know, like do some marine ecology thing in some strange part of the world, something that feels like an adventure to me. What is something that you know that everyone else is wrong about? (laughs) That's a great question. Oh, boy. I might have to think about that one. Okay. You can think about it. I'm going to a little cop out here. Is that cool? I I knew when I was going to interview Carl Keller, there would be plenty of cop-outs. So So I don't believe in certainty. So how about that? Because like, I don't like, even, you know, you say the sun's going to be up tomorrow. We don't know that you're pretty darn sure, but you don't actually know, like something could happen that would prevent the sun from coming up tomorrow or maybe the earth stops spinning or the sun extinguishes, whatever. I don't believe in certainty. So I, anytime that somebody is like a hundred percent sure about something and then I am wary because that's Give me an example that's less pedantic than the sun coming up. Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> like uh, I, I know, I definitely know that the sun might not come up tomorrow. I, right. That I is understand like, you're saying there, but like, but we're not really a, worried about it. Right. Give me a situation where I would be certain and you would be like, uh, be careful. I think for me, it's kind of like anything. So say you're like having an argument about, I know for myself, when I think that something is true, I will generally put some sort of qualification with that because I think it's good to acknowledge uncertainty with an answer. When somebody Like if I ask somebody a scientific question and they answer me with something like, it's definitely, uh, I can't, I'm coming up with a concrete example here. 
Let me let me try to help. Thinking so I don't know exactly where it's from. I think it's an Arabic um, civilization, or maybe something. Maybe I'm completely off. You might know, but there's there's this idea that if there's ten people debating something or ten like leaders discussing something, and nine of them agree, it's the job of the tenth one to disagree, to you know hold to huh. disagreement is like no matter what he will always be like if he's the last person and you know or if if it's somebody else in another issue but if there if nine of them agree it is the job the understood role of that 10th person to disagree and it or you know try <laughs> to get all of them to come back to the other side or whatever and i think those aren't exactly uh perfect parallels but i think there's there's some aspect of that in what you're saying i like that that's yeah i think that's that's pretty cool i've never heard of that before i'll tell you one example not maybe maybe not exactly an example of what i'm in the vein of what i'm saying here basically maybe this is contentious but if you like right now there's this this problem with truth in general, would you agree? Kind of like in how, um, yeah. especially in America, we're like how we talk about truth or like how we define truth. It's kind of like a, it's like a little tricky right now because we have people who have, we're not able to have good rational discussions because we can't agree about basic assumptions. And if you like any argument, like Bertrand Russell way back in the day, tried to prove that one plus one equals two. Like he was trying to break down math into its most basic assumptions. Right. And mm-hmm. That's where he like boiled it down to, well, okay, one thing plus another thing equals two of that thing. But then he said, well, how do we prove that? Like, that's if we just say that's true, that's an assumption. He wanted to get rid of all assumptions in math. And, and he spent years doing this. He wrote thousands of pages. And eventually he like kind of gave up. And later on, this guy Godel came along and proved that you cannot prove the assumptions of math. Basically, any kind of math is going to be built on assumptions, not axioms. Like you're going to have to make choices about the basic rules of your math. And you can make different choices about that. And that will lead to a different kind of math. And so like there is no fundamental truth in math. It's, there's some arbitrary stuff. If you are willing to stop and hard, hard break and say, no, this is truth. Then I think that you have like made an arbitrary distinction, and you're treating something that is an assumption as an axiom, and that is how a debate stalls out. It's like when you, when if you can, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson. This is like a paraphrase quote that I've never even read. It's like somebody just told me, so I, I don't even know if he said this, but he was saying that if you're having an argument with somebody, you should just try to boil it down to like the base, boil it down to the axioms that you're disagreeing about. And if you get to a point where there are just fundamental things that neither of you are willing to budge on, if you both like your basic assumptions are totally different, you should just stop because that's when it doesn't go anywhere. You know, if those things are different, unless you can argue about those things themselves, but if you both have separate set in stone basal beliefs, there's no way that you're going to change those higher level ideas without dealing with those basal beliefs. So if you can argue about the basal beliefs, that's good. But most people, those basal beliefs, they have certainty. And that's why I think that that is a problem. I think that you should always keep those things a little bit loose. That way you can still have a debate. That, that's, I mean, that, and that's like, that's fundamental to science. You see this, I'm going on a total ramble tangent right now. Is that cool? Yeah, I'm listening. Okay. So in science, there have been all these examples of people who are like, like somebody comes up with a new idea that's kind of like, whoa, that's kind of like out there, a little, little weird. Like plate tectonics is a great example. Somebody says, hey, I think that the surface of the earth, these massive chunks of rock are sliding around all over the place. And if you look at the shape of the continents, they kind of look like puzzle pieces. If you smash them together, they fit together kind of. And people, this was in like, you know, the 1930s or I think when people started talking about this. I don't know exactly when it was, but people were still arguing about it in like the 40s, whether this was possible or not. People, you could see how you're like, you're saying, okay, the continents look like puzzle pieces and you want me to believe that the gigantic masses of rock are sliding around all over the surface of the earth that's too convenient too weird too crazy it can't be true it's just impossible and so they were close-minded to that they had their idea they had their assumptions they had their 
basic truths about how geology worked, that the world was pretty static and that there were all these slow processes going on. And so people were unable to incorporate that new idea. This happens all the time in science where you've got your truth and you can't accept the new truth. And then it takes like 20 years for the paradigm to shift and for people to have that be their new truth. And it's like we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Oh, that's too radical of an idea. It can't be true. Um, so if you keep those things a little loose, then you can be the guy that's like, well, I mean, try to convince me, you know, like, I'm not going to argue with you right out of the gate. That seems like extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, but by keeping a loose hold on certainty, you can be the one that is accepting of those new ideas. And I think that's like the fundamental, like that's how science works is that there is no truth. There's no hard truth. All truth is in question. You know, every, everything that you know you have to be able to prove. And so if somebody comes up with even a little disproof for that, you have to be able to deal with that. You have to be able to say why, I don't know. Wow. Big ramble. No, it's good. I, Sorry. That's, disjointed thoughts. It's, it goes <laughs> hand in hand with that idea that, you know, maybe we need to go back to the fundamentals in some aspects because, you know, that's how, that's how science is supposed to work. That's how coming up with, uh, alleged truths is supposed to work. Here's what I will add to that. And this is where I was going to take it into religion. Like if you believe that something is definitely true and are not willing to question it, which I think is the way it is a lot. A lot of people are uncomfortable with questioning something that they think is definitely true because you have to build your world and yourself upon something, right? You don't want your basement to always be shifting. That's faith. And faith has value for people, but that's not, I don't think that's a valid system for figuring out what's true and what's not true. When you, like faith is like you decide that something is true and then faith is that decision to stop asking questions about it, which is functionally powerful because that gives you a rock, you know, like if you have, these are my 10 commandments, these are my morals. Those are rocks that when you have to make hard decisions, you can boil down your thought process. Like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And then you get to a bottom layer, you get to your rock, your bedrock, and you can say, no, these are my morals. These are my commandments. How do I use these axioms to build up to a bigger level decision? So it's very functional. That's why they exist. But I don't think that that like that's good for being a person, but it's not good for figuring out the truth. Because if your basal assumptions are wrong or can be, if you can't challenge them, then you can never, you can't adapt to new truths. Right. It's good to have a foundation, but you got to be able to go outside sometimes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, my thoughts weren't more uh, put together on that. It's a big idea. It's a big, big question. Yeah. Let me let me ask you a little little smaller one. So, okay, cool. scuba diving <laughs> is a passion of yours. It's a huge part of your life. Yeah. How do we get more people scuba diving? And also, I've never scuba dived. Like, you can bring it into the the specific. Like, what? What would get me scuba diving? Okay. What do I got to do? This is an what easy do, what one. What people got to do? <laughs> first off, first step is to go snorkeling, I think. Like scuba diving is a means to an end, which is like enjoying underwater scenes and creatures and exploring. It's like a, it's a new tool to explore. I don't think scuba diving, like it's cool to be able to breathe underwater, but that's like the vessel to get you to someplace. So I think it makes sense to start out by like, putting a snorkel on that doesn't cost you any money really it's like 20 bucks go get a snorkel and a mask maybe some fins and just hop in whatever body of water you're nearby i grew up snorkeling in lakes and rivers in maine and like if you saw a fish you would like get up and be like i saw a fish like get over here ben get over here i saw a fish man i saw a fish and then ben would go get his goggles and you like look at the fish whereas you know maybe if you're listening to this in hawaii that's going to sound stupid and shitty because you can stand on a rock and look at thousands of fish. Uh, but that's, that's step number one is like, get excited about what's going on underwater and like, just take a look down there. Like I think to a lot of people, the ocean is just a mirror for the sun. Uh, but there's like so much going on down there. So get excited about that. I would also make the plug that scuba diving, like I think some people think it's like this, crazy like or not crazy but like a pretty like technical skill that's like tricky and you have to know a lot of rules and like have to be able to handle all this equipment it kind of looks that way so you got all these hoses and like a big pressurized tank and gauges and stuff like that but it's really when it gets when you learn it it is very it's very very simple it's like a 
like the things you need to know to not hurt yourself. There's like three rules and they're very simple. So I don't think people should be intimidated. It's cool that you look like a Navy SEAL when you're scuba diving. That's like one of the bonuses that you look like a badass, I think. But it's really the fish pretty so. easy. So that's that's another thing. Don't be intimidated by all like the tubes and stuff. Really pretty easy. And after you've done it a few times, it becomes pretty natural. I mean, I yeah, I take my friends scuba diving sometimes that don't have their licenses. There's a there's a system. So it usually costs like 250 bucks to get certified. Um, and that certification system is good because you know I said there's three things you need to know to scuba dive to not get hurt, and they teach you those things and they have you practice them around somebody who can prevent you from doing those those things wrong. So it's pretty foolproof. I've seen like in Indonesia, I saw they had like discover scuba. So it's people that they would take out groups of Chinese tourists that did not know how to swim and they would take them scuba diving, which to me is like, that is crazy. I mean, it's kind of badass if you're that person who doesn't know how to swim. Like you imagine you've never been swimming in the ocean and all of a sudden you're like underwater with sharks and trying to walk because you don't know what, what swimming is. So <laughs> it, that's, that's how accessible I think it is. And if you want to, if you want to get into scuba diving, a lot of people, like a lot of people seem to think that you can go to like, you know, some third world country and get your scuba certification a little cheaper. I'm not actually sure if that's true. Like, I think that the cost of a scuba class is pretty standardized world, worldwide. And I think you, there are places you can find that you'll pay a lot more for it. But like I paid 250 bucks in Maine to do my scuba certification. And I haven't really heard of it getting much cheaper than that. And it's yeah, like, when I was know, in... Columbia uh, in Taganga is allegedly like the cheapest place in the world to get it. And the, the, the few companies that did it around there, it was all French, French instructors and stuff. And yeah, I mean, 250 sounds about what it was. Yeah. I mean, even if you go to Thailand, like it maybe will be the same. It might even be more expensive. Like sometimes you'll pay a premium just because you're in like a nice place. Uh, and maybe they'll take you to nice, like take you out on the boat and go further. So that might be worth paying for, but also, especially if you account for the fact that you have to get there. I mean, you can get scuba certified in Colorado. You can get scuba certified anywhere. They'll just take you to a lake or like a quarry or whatever. And, uh, once you've got that, you've got it for life. So you don't have to like stay up to date on it or anything like that. The reason you need to do that is because nobody will rent you a tank if you don't have that. Nobody will like take you out on the boat. Otherwise, I would just say, like, watch some YouTube videos and read a three-page document, and you could pretty much scuba dive yeah. after you practice a little bit. It's really not that complicated. Actually, one yeah. more. This is, this is another important point, I think. This is something that I think is worth talking about. With scuba diving, it's also viewed as, like, kind of a high-class, expensive sport. Like, the image you get generally of scuba diving is sort of like, you know, French and German people on their vacation. They fly halfway around the world, and then they pay three thousand dollars to live on a liveaboard boat and go scuba diving for a week or like you're paying you know 40 or 50 bucks a pop to scuba dive like off the boat in indonesia or whatever like that's a cool like experience like i think a lot of people would shell out 40 dollars to go scuba dive on a coral reef but that's not something you can do frequently 40 dollars is expensive but if you buy your own scuba gear you and buy your own tank tank is like 100 bucks um scuba gear can be really expensive but a lot of people will tell you this is stupid, but you can get it on Craigslist. There's tons of used scuba gear in the world. You just bring it to a shop and get it checked out, and it's not it's not that bad. So if you drop like you know six hundred dollars over the course of time on scuba gear, now you can scuba dive anywhere in the world for five bucks. That's how much it costs to fill a tank of air. You just go scuba dive off the beach. You don't need a boat. So once you make that initial investment, it's a really really cheap sport. It's kind of like anything else. You know, if you want to go skiing and if you have to rent skis every time, that's going to be, well, skiing stays expensive because of lift tickets, but I mean, that's a bad example. Like any, you know, if you want to buy a mountain bike, there goes a thousand bucks. You want to buy skis, there goes a thousand bucks. So if you make that same investment with scuba diving, now it's a $5 a pop sport, which is, which is not something that I think a lot of people tap into, but I think more people should. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about those sort of stereotypes about scuba diving and that's definitely you know, something that I think about it. So you've changed our hearts and minds. <laughs> All right, sweet. 
Well, yeah. Carl, thanks for coming on, man. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, well, it's good talking with you, Joey. Yeah. That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Where does the flavor of bubblegum derive from? <laughs>